This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. demand it is time for our bi-weekly aka semi-monthly excursion into space what do you know about space well if you take the combined knowledge of everyone on this planet and add it together the fact of the matter is we still don't know very much about space which is why it is so interesting to think about to talk about to wonder about, and there is nobody that is a better shepherd for our space journey into the final frontier than Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Not only does he have a terrific amount of knowledge, but he has one of the best voices in all of radio. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. And you could also check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, at uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Kind enough to join us every two weeks these days. Steve, it is great to have you back. Well, good morning, Frank, and good morning to the listeners out there. As we call this, with your permission, what the infinite side of midnight with our biweekly episodes. So thanks again for, for having me. I love it. The infinite side of midnight. we got to get a, uh, a promo uh, to that effect. I, <laughs> I, love I absolutely it. love it. All right, there's a lot that I want to get yes. to. Let me begin with something that I've been getting Uh, a lot of emails about, even though it's uh, about a month away, exactly a month away. We are going to have another total solar eclipse. When is the last time that we uh, had one? Where's the best spot to see it? And uh, why is a solar eclipse such a big deal? Well, Frank, this is amazing. I call it sacred geometry. And anybody out there within this particular radio station all across this country and around the world, if they've ever gotten or had a chance, that is, to see what I call the total solar eclipse event, sacred geometry. The last time we had one here in the United States that was easy for people to see, they called it the Great American Solar Eclipse, total as it was, and that occurred back in August of 2017. We positioned ourselves, lucky for us, clearest skies possible in northern Idaho for this. But, Frank, this event that we're talking about is not going to happen for another year. Actually, the date, to Ah. be accurate here, is April 8th. 2024. But here's something interesting. I've been you know, scouring the internet, calling places to find out where's the best place to have kind of like a, I don't know, maybe we could call it like a mini uh, Woodstock kind of festival <laughs> in the sky. And the best places, according to weather forecasters, will be on that date, April 8, 2024, right in Texas Hill Country. There's a great town there just to the west of uh, Austin, Texas, called Fredericksburg. Uh, sadly, where the school shooting happened in Duvalde, Texas, that also passes right through that area. But that is going to take place again, just to be accurate and let everybody know, April the 8th, 2024. But Frank, the point is, I've been calling all these different locations to talk about this. And you know what they're telling us? Well, we've been booked for over a year there, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) So so Texas is the best spot to watch it. And I'm sorry that I thought it was a month. I assumed, based on the volume of emails that I've been getting from people asking about it, that it was much sooner than it is. But, okay, April 8th, 2024, it gives us an opportunity to plan for a uh, remote broadcast from another good location. Absolutely. So if we can't do the show from from Texas, 
Texas. What is the view going to be like in other places, the East Coast, New York, for instance? Partial eclipse, but here's some good news. The upper part of New York State, let's say Buffalo, New York, this actually, the, the path of totality, they're called the central line, actually goes almost downtown Buffalo, New York. But unfortunately, weather forecasts may, and hopefully I'm wrong, that people who live within the sound of this radio station and its home office, if we obviously only, only had to drive a few hundred miles as opposed to going all the way to Texas, the path of the eclipse, people can look it up, of course, on the Internet. It starts off in the South Pacific, where maybe a lot of fish and whales might and sharks get to popped up and see the thing. But this one, once it hits Mexico, it goes into the northern parts of the mountainous region of Mexico, and again, throughout the central part of Texas, and then it continues to arc up through Arkansas and all the way into southern Illinois. Cleveland, Ohio would get a good view. And then it actually goes up to the Maritimes, all the way up in the areas like Quebec and Montreal. People in that area would have a good opportunity to see it. But it's amazing. If you're away from that area, from the center line, you're going to see a partial eclipse closer to the center line. Let's say you're right on the center line you'll see 100% of that eclipse. But if you just stray outside that bandwidth, which sometimes can be as small as 50 miles, sometimes 120 miles, you're going to see 99, 98, 97. So there'll be maps all over the place to show people. But that's the problem. When people think there's an eclipse and they watch it, we have a lot of educated people out there. But for children and to protect the eyes, it's very much a necessity during any part of this eclipse to have the proper solar glasses. And that was a whole controversy. Right. Oh, boy, back in 2017, I bought and fell for the scam. I bought some things off of a big website, not to name it. But unfortunately, when I got it, I think I mentioned this on the program way back when in the past time, this particular device was like something like steampunk goggles, like you'd ride, let's say, on a motorcycle or something. And they were nothing but green-colored lenses. They weren't solar filters. So you have to be careful with that. But we'll be talking more about that, I'm sure, to give right. people the right idea. Yeah. No. How, how rare are total solar eclipses? Well, this is an answer that's really interesting. If you were to stand, let's say, in downtown Manhattan or anywhere where the people are listening right now all across the world, the totality recurrence of an eclipse is probably once in that same spot every 300 and some years, 370 years, I've even heard. So the people in southern, in southern Illinois, by a place called Carbondale in Marion, Illinois, they had a central pass of the deepest totality back in, 19, in 2017. And they're going to get it again, which is quite unusual. And there's another place, I believe, along that eclipse path that people would see the crossing of those two dark you know, areas when the totality came. So let's say this, to keep it really simple, approximately once every 370-plus years, if you stood in the same spot, you would get to see a total solar eclipse. But right for New York City, I don't have the exact date, but it's in that area of like 2071. There's going to be a very strange total solar eclipse that will rise. I mean, that as soon as the sun rises, it will rise in totality. And that will be visible for people in 2071, I believe, as if they're standing, let's say, on the Empire State Building or tall buildings. You would get to see, hopefully, with a cloud-free sky. This is just how the math works. But they're kind of rare. And I've, this would be my sixth one that I've seen. And it's so funny that we're wow. talking about this because March 7th, 1970, God rest my father's soul, he took me out of school and he said to me, son, I'm picking you up and we're heading to Florida. And we lived, of course, in New Jersey. And I said, where are we going, Dad? And he said, we're going to take you to see your first total solar eclipse. So as a little kid, you know, in school, I thought this was the coolest thing ever. We drove all the way down there on, you know, Interstate 95. 
And we stopped at a place that I think everybody knows if they've driven to Florida. I don't know if it's still there, south of the border. <laughs> and I remember heading into Florida. But when we got to the location called Perry, Florida, where we were looking to see totality, Frank, it was the most amazing, disappointing thing ever. It was pouring rain, and totality took place, so it was like the end of the world in a muddy field, (laughs) but I was (laughs) experienced it, and I said, you know what, from now on, I'm going to get to see more of these, so I've made it a habit, and a lot of people out there that are listening, I'll bet you they've got some track records from being on ocean liners, and there's going to be another great total solar eclipse, and it's a shame I don't have the dates in front of me exactly, but we'll get them as time goes on. I think in 2027, with a fair degree of accuracy, like 120%, you're going to see a total solar eclipse near Luxor in Egypt. So could you imagine being throughout this area where the pyramids are and the, the, these amazing shrines to this you know, great culture that, that ruled part of that world? Imagine being there to see the amazing eclipse and that whole amazing place that studied the sky so much. Yeah, uh, that is for sure. Well, keep us posted on that. Uh, Absolutely. Th- that sounds uh, pretty interesting. By the way, let me give you the phone number if people have questions about anything we're talking about or anything space-related. We'll try and get to as many of your questions as we can throughout the hour. Talking with Steve Cates, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, let's talk about what's happening now in the present day or the near-present Aurora season uh, is uh, begins in March, I suppose. What does this mean yes. for us and uh, our potential views of a, a different Aurora uh, celestial observations? Well, great question. And the closer you are to the higher latitudes, people who are listening say, wow, they see these auroras, let's say, up in Minnesota, up in Canada, and all the northern states, and even way up toward the pole. So why we call it Aurora season is right now, what happens, Frank, is that this time of year, There's a weakness in the Earth's magnetic field. It's a technical term called the Russell-McFerrin effect. sounds like something from a medical journal. Mm -hmm. But what it translates to simply is this. The the weakening of the Earth's magnetic field causes these holes, let's say, hypothetically, up in the upper atmosphere. And right now, the sun is belching out with solar cycle 25 some incredible intensity. Every day, we're seeming to get some kind of a solar flare CME. So what's going to happen the, the auroras love equinoxes because this is a path that usually happens every year when this thing happens, when the magnetic field weakens a bit. So where does all this energy go? It streams like a bar magnet. It goes right into the weak spots, up into the poles, and down, of course, in the southern hemisphere. So this is quite interesting what's happening. And we're going to be able to see, just over the past few days, an active region on the sun called 3243. They number all these sunspot groups. Some of them are gigantic. You know, they're almost the diameter of the Earth to the moon some of these sunspot groups. So we had an M-class flare, which is not a super X flare, 5.8, like we're talking like a Richter scale number, on March the 6th. And we're told that we're supposed to have a G1-type magnetic storm. What's that? Not the highest level. So people listening, of course, in higher latitudes, I've seen the auroras many times, right, when I was living in the New York area. And many people, of course, have even seen the auroras. I've seen them even here in Arizona. But it's an interesting time for us to to, to see this. This is the season for it. But remember this, these these coronal mass ejections, when they blast off the sun, they take about 15 to 18 hours to actually get from the sun to the earth. They're like this big cloud of material. But solar flares happen instantaneously at the speed of light. So in conclusion, aurora season is here, and I guarantee in the people who live in those northern latitudes, they may already be seeing them. 
And boy, Frank, have you have you ever seen one of these aurora? Displays? No, not um, not uh, not firsthand. Just uh, in photographs and and amazing. on video. It's amazing. And for the people out there that never had seen one, like yourself, you don't, there was always these big tours that go up to say Sweden and Norway to go to Iceland. I mean, people see this all the time. And I have friends in those higher latitudes, and they tell me, oh, another night, oh, the aurora's out. You know, <laughs> I was like, wow, I'd love to see them. And some of those displays can be really amazing. Now, when we talk about the aurora borealis, that seems to be sort of the creme de la creme of aurorae. What yep. makes the aurora borealis so special? Why is that such a big deal? Well, the energy from the sun, let's put it this way, simplicity, these neutrons and protons, mostly heavy electrified, you know, electrified protons coming from the sun, they travel at this great speed, and what they do is they excite the atmosphere, the upper atmosphere of the Earth. And what we find out when we look into the sky, we find out that oxygen molecules get excited, and they make what we call or see the greenish effect for this particular aurora. But nitrogen is also a big component in the Earth's atmosphere, and when that gets hit with these heavy charged you know, protons, what happens is it turns those into the blue, it turns them into the pink and the red colors of aurora, and there's been some examples, I think we've talked about it on previous programs here, where the excitation of the upper atmosphere was so intense that observers in Florida and even at the equator got to see auroral displays. And the most prolific one, Frank, we mentioned it once or twice, is the Carrington event that happened in 1859 when right. the whole sky lit up so badly or so greatly for people back then we saw the auroras on a regular basis for about a week right at the equator. That's incredible. It certainly is. Uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Uh, Dr. Sky, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, if you would like to comment. Uh, by the way, speaking of the Carrington event, Robert in Suffolk has a question about that. Hello, Robert. Hi, Dr. Sky. What are the odds of a... Yes, good morning. What are the odds of another Carrington event happening at the peak of the solar cycles? You know, Robert, that's one of the best questions I've had in a long time, and here we go. We really don't know, but I would say this way. If I was a gambler in Las Vegas, I don't know what, you know, how much. I don't think I'd put all my chips on one of these colors if I was at the blackjack table, see at the roulette table. But here's the answer. We noticed that these particular cycles, cycles 25 right now was considered to be weak, but it's much stronger. But whatever happened back in September of 1859, that so-called Carrington event, was primarily a flare event. The observer, named, of course, Carrington, he was observing the sun. He saw this event with the telescope. It almost blinded him. But the chances of having that happen again, I hope, are pretty slim. But don't, you know, let's not discount this solar cycle because really strange things can happen. What's going to have to happen to make it like the Carrington event is a massive flare or sunspot group is going to have to blow out one of those wow. when it's right in the center of the sun. And if it's not, it's going to cause a glancing blow. Be careful what we wish for, right, Robert? So <laughs> since, you, since you mentioned the solar cycle, let me ask you about this. The headline in Newsweek a few days ago was, mm -hmm. the sun is getting fired up and it's way beyond what experts predicted. And this all has to do with solar cycle 25 what does right. this mean when we say solar cycles in general and solar cycle 25? And what can we expect from a solar perspective, Steve? Well, very good question. We have solar cycles that go back on a basis of about 11 and a half to 12 years. They've been calculating these back, go back all the way to solar cycle one. 
obviously, with modern technology, you know, we don't know what people did in the 1600s. They didn't have a way to observe it. But each of these solar cycles, there's astronomers out there and physicists that predict what's going to happen on the sun. We now know, Frank, and to everybody listening, that the sun has a much longer and deeper cycle than the 11 and a 12, 11 and a half or 12 year solar cycle. It could be as much as maybe even a 30 or 40 year cycle. So what we've seen with these solar cycles, it's kind of spooky, and I want to scare people, but this particular solar cycle was considered to be moderate, but now it's doing amazing things, as you've just told us, and we were talking before with Robert. We don't know, really, the end game on this. The maximum of solar cycle 25 could peak sometime in late 2024. The earlier predictions were sometime in late 2025, but again, the thing you don't want to have happen is a massive sunspot group because all these, if you take your fingers and intermesh them, that's like a sunspot group magnetic field. And when those fingers start to slide back and forth and they would snap, not your fingers, hopefully, the magnetic fields can be so powerful that that energy on the sun, if you could just extract one area of that solar flare, let's say, which is probably two or three times the size of the earth, imagine how much energy use we could get here on the earth if we could have a way to harness it, but that's virtually impossible. So I don't know. I mean, hopefully it's going to be uh, better than normal, but let's pray and hopefully that we continue to pray that it's not a massive Carrington event because simply we live not in the Victorian Internet anymore like they had back then with Telegraph. Our whole basis of life is geared on what? Everything's electronic and digital. Not a good thing so when the sun So if there lowers. were to be something like this, there could be, it would be a similar situation to the kind of EMP or the EMP attack or a yes. naturally occurring EMP threat that we've been talking right. about. Absolutely. And again, not to alarm people, but I remember when both of us had interviews with Dr. Pry, I know, and I know sadly we reported what a show or two ago that he had passed away. That's so sad. He was the leading scientist, I know, from both of our perspectives, talking and listening to him about the future of EMP attacks. But when you look at the sun, no matter how much an EMP attack could be produced man-made, the sun, of course, could just go wildly wicked on us. And we do know in history there have been larger big eruptions from the sun. Okay, this is what astronomers have you know, looked back in time, and they've calculated certain things. I don't know how, but they know that there's even been, been excuse me, bigger blasts than the Carrington event. And let's hope that this particular star doesn't go wild on us anytime soon. Mm, absolutely. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We've talked a little bit about asteroids before and uh, the possibilities that come with asteroid observance, the possible threats that might involve asteroid collisions with this planet, because after all, nobody wants to end up like the, the dinosaurs. Right. But we're now hearing a little bit more about asteroid mining. Uh, this is something that has largely been up until this point science fiction is this something that could be reality i think so there's companies out there frank that are working on the prospect of being able to send a spacecraft obviously robotic at this point it's not going to be like an armageddon mission where we have the ability to land on say a comet or an asteroid and start doing that with a drill and a hammer but just take this a bit of information i think is worthy is worthy to mention scientists have calculated this astronomers that if you took all the metallic objects in the asteroid belt, or just the asteroid belt itself, what's it worth as far as its value, and this is kind of a crazy thing that's, that they're telling us, 
the value of the entire asteroid belt, with millions of asteroids, let's say, and maybe that number is a little too conservative, it would be a value to each American or each person, excuse me, on the Earth, not just Americans, of $100 billion for every person on Earth as far as the net value of that whole material out there, meaning iron, all these rare elements, gold, diamonds, and such. But the reality is you have to get close to an asteroid to be able to really look at the technology of how to do it. We know with our spacecraft like the DART, we've been able to push an asteroid a little bit out of the way as an asteroid threat detector to hopefully you know, push an asteroid out of the way. Even that has to be you know, really refined. But what's even more fascinating, this asteroid Ryugu from the Japanese spacecraft mm. Hayabusa 2, we've now discovered that there's something really interesting in that material. It scooped up these little pebbles, let's say. We found organic molecules. This is interesting. And I think it's, it's, it's like breaking news in the world of astronomy that on little asteroid Ryugu, they found organic molecules that basically prove one of the things and one of the theories is that life could have been disseminated out into space, not only by comets, but also by asteroid bodies smashing into the Earth in a concept called panspermia, in which material like organic compounds came from space. And what it does <clears throat> in the universe, excuse me, is that it repopulates planets with hopefully carbon-based life. Isn't that fascinating? Well, so uh, take me through that again. So this asteroid Ryugu, where they right. found these organic <clears throat> molecules me. on the asteroid, mm -hmm. the theory behind panspermia is that uh, those the, the origin of those organic molecules actually comes from Earth, and then it, and then it ended up out in space? No, actually, from the creation of the solar system, let's just talk our local you know, planetary system, when it formed about four and a half billion years ago, they're saying that that material, more likely on comets than particularly asteroids, but since they found organic molecules on asteroids, it goes to even maybe say that the theory is even more correct, that out in space, when the universe or the solar system was formed, that these objects that move like comets, they maybe hit other planetary objects. And this probably goes on throughout the entire world of exoplanets, you know, all the planets around other stars, that it may be a transmission method of transmitting life in the form of organic material to new planetary systems. So who knows? But that gets into a lot of controversy because we haven't been able to totally mm. prove that. But it's a very viable theory based on what? The total number of star systems that are out there the probable number of comets, because all these star systems basically form the same way. You have this ring material after the star fuses, and that fusion, that material that's left in the outer area starts to form planets. And then with comets coming back from the outer part of that area of a solar system, it goes, you know, like a billiard ball. You hit the, the each ball bangs into each other. You'd have comets that were hitting the Earth or objects like, uh, you know, other objects like that and uh, doing what? seeding it with life. Yeah, it is fascinating indeed. All right, we're going to uh, continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you have a question for Steve Cates. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Cause you're a sky 
Stars, a very appropriate song selection for our one-hour discussion with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer. He's also a podcaster, and you could hear the Dr. Sky experience at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search on any podcast app, the Dr. Sky experience, and it comes Right up. Steve, we're uh, seeing some interesting images both from the Hubble telescope and from the uh, James Webb telescope. But uh, the Hubble Space Telescope specifically is facing some threats from other satellites. Uh, What's going on? What role are satellites playing in the images that we're getting from Hubble? Well, this is another great question. If you look at the whole total number of low Earth orbit satellites, they say, you know, various sources out there. About 3,000 low-Earth orbit satellites. So what's happening for astronomers at these big observatories with these giant, you know, digital pixel, megapixel cameras is let's say you and I are taking pictures from the ground. We'll start there. They're also seeing on these images, wow, let's say one astronomer like you and I say to each other, hey, Frank, wow, look at that image we just ruined because something <laughs> comes right across it like you took a Sharpie, but a bright Sharpie. If you had a white Sharpie on a black piece of paper. But now it's getting to be a problem with things like the Hubble Space Telescope images. So they're seeing this, and they're seeing like a 6% increase in this problem, which I call photobombing in space, since 2021. And it's a concern for astronomers. Now, the average person, you know, getting a cup of coffee, driving to work, probably goes, well, okay, uh, how does that affect me? But the truth is, with what the researchers are doing to try to see these faint galaxies explore the universe... It's just becoming, the bottom line, very, very crowded in low Earth orbit. And not blaming SpaceX. I mean, what are they doing? They're putting up more and more of these Starlink satellites. I think the number eventually will go up to 12,000 of these particular satellites. But, hey, ask the person who's in Antarctica who uh, has no cell coverage or somebody in the middle of a jungle, let's say, in Africa or South America or even some distant places in America here, North America, you're going to want that technology. So, That's what's happening with the science side. The the astronomers are just a little upset. And also, it's not just that, Frank. It's also the radio telescope people are having a lot of interference from these cellular towers and other spurious and stray radiation that's coming out and bouncing off all over the place. Because if our eyes could see in the radio spectrum, could you imagine how complicated the world would be if our eyes were sensitive to that? You'd see all these cross waves coming through and who knows what's going on. But the radio astronomers need that clear signal. So the best place to put a radio telescope, everybody is vouching for that, is on the far side of the moon where it's extremely dark and you really don't have that interference. Mm, interesting. 800-848-9222. Claude calling from Baltimore where he's listening on WCBM. Hello, Claude. Hey, my friends, Dr. Sky. Good morning, Claude. I'm going to tell you some crazy things, man. I'm, I'm, I was in the fire department for 20 years. And yes. I was a cop. And every full moon, something goes on. Like tonight, I was at work, and a guy yes. did a Peter Pan off a three-story building. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he 
he, he got up and did a somersault, took his clothes off, and, and it took 10 cops to get him down. Wow. That was sad. And <clears throat> I just wanted to mention to all the listeners there, Claude, and Frank, this is interesting. Tonight we're experiencing the remnants of the beautiful full worm moon, and the names come from these Native American tribes, of course, that named these a long time ago. And we're going through this right now, so if you have a clear sky and you look up, what appears to be a 100% full moon to the eye, if you get into the technical side, Claude, the moon is full when it's 180 degrees opposite the sun. Right now, its distance is 170, but you know what? Who's going to split hairs? So it's still a full moon. When, when was the technical full moon, or when will be the technical full moon? Well, what happened with this particular full moon, I'm believing that it happened on the 7th in the afternoon. And I'm trying to remember the exact time. I it see. looks like it happened on, I'm, I'm just trying to think about this. And, and I know I talked about this yesterday. It's on the 7th, and I think it was like 1.20 in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time as we move across to the vernal equinox, or actually to the daylight saving time period coming up. But what happens is simply this. When the moon's 180 degrees from the sun, you could say it's 100% full. How and when do we actually see that? When you have a total lunar eclipse, when the moon actually moves through the deepest central part of the Earth's shadow, that would be that moment of 180 degrees. But right now, just from the, for the people out there that are very technical-minded, if you were looking at the lunar surface with a telescope right now, you would see the right edge start to show some shadow effect. So it's at 170 degrees, not 180 degrees right now. And it'll continue to increase. Excuse me, that number will decrease as the moon then looks gibbous like an egg shape and then moves back to last quarter as it'll do that later in the month. Speaking of things that are out there in space but nearby, and speaking of satellites, which the moon certainly is, albeit a natural one, the there was a lot of discussion about the future of our relationship with China in the aftermath of the spy balloon that was shot down. And a lot of folks are wondering if that's sort of the next uh, battlefield in our Cold War with China, space. And there has been, uh, what do we know about the state of what China is doing as it relates to satellites and re- as it relates to spying on U.S. spacecraft? Well, we could do a whole two hours on this about the balloon. I mean, we still don't have definitive answers why it wasn't shot down originally when it was over the Aleutians. We know our U-2, our, you know, space, uh, excuse me, aircraft went up to above 70,000 feet, and there was a guy that actually took like a selfie, one of the pilots, I guess he wasn't supposed to do that, and you could see all the electronic array there. But up in space right now, what's happening with China, they're actually spying on U.S. spacecraft. And this is an interesting subject because as we move to that higher ground, we never thought about this before. In other words, would eventually satellites, you know, they would crash into each other eventually if they ran out of, you know, propellant or what have you, their orbits decayed. But now that the higher ground of where, you know, warfare could occur is definitely up in that low Earth orbit area and even higher. But how about this? And not to shift gears, but this is also, Frank, on the same uh, you know, alignment. There's a mysterious launch that's about to take place. We don't know when, and I don't think it's happened, from Cape Canaveral, where Space Force has something going on. The Army, apparently, this is uh, from Tyler Rogaway at thewarzone.com. People can check this out. He's like an amazing person who talked about the Chinese spy balloon and what we did and all the details. But here's, here's the skinny on this. Apparently, the United States Army is going to be testing a long-range hypersonic weapon. 
It's like a trailer type of missile, like you see, like the North Koreans have these big missiles that are on these trucks with the giant number of wheels. We're going to be testing some type of long-range hypersonic weapon from the field mm. that has the ability to travel. And I'm not, I'm not sure of this, so if I'm not sure of something, I'm not going to say it accurately. I'm not going to tell people wrong stuff. But this particular object will be able to fly probably at Mach maybe 5 or 6 or maybe even more and be able to travel over 1,700 miles. So it's interesting that the Army would start doing this. But again, so many nations around the world, China obviously has these glide vehicles, they call them, hypersonic glide vehicles, which are supposed to be able to carry nuclear warheads that instead of the old school theory that, you know, if one side launched their missiles, you'd have 20 minutes to respond this might change the game where it reduces itself to like 10 minutes time because it's traveling so fast and it's literally skimming the atmosphere. They're called these glide vehicles. And on the tip of one of the Chinese ones, allegedly, it has the multiple independently targeted vehicle, which has numerous warheads that once it pops those out, each one of those goes according to, uh, you know, like their own GPS to the targets that it wants with upwards, they're saying of about maybe a two or four, two to four megaton warhead. So this is kind of crazy. So we're obviously getting into the hypersonic uh, missile technology, and we sure better. You know, That's for sure. sure. It's uh, and a lot to be concerned about, and uh, China only seems to be getting more ambitious in their spacefaring yes. and uh, spying on other countries with satellites, including ours. So we'll see where that goes. 800... 800- Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. You're on with Doctor Sky. Hi, Frank. Hi, Doctor Sky. I have a Good question morning. about the sustainability of the astronauts on the moon or Mars. Now, there's certain times that we went back in Apollo days to, uh, you know, we we had fuel cells to give you know water and and, and stuff, mm-hmm. and that that's how we you know we keep water out of you know. But when when we went, we went at a certain time. We could only stay for two or three days at the most because of the sun angle and all that. Now, how are they going to be able to sustain themselves on the moon uh, for more than, a, a, let's say, a week or two? When yeah, very, yeah. very good, very good question. No, you bring up a fantastic question here, Jim. Here's the answer. When the Apollo astronauts, you, you kind of gave it away there. The launch time and the descent to the surface of the moon, when they went there, they planned it so that the sun angle was very low. So let's say you come out of your house around 8 o'clock in the morning, the sun's you know, low in the sky. They obviously couldn't sustain themselves walking around on the moon when the sun was at local noontime. So in order to do this and prevent themselves from you know, dying on the moon, they're going to have to build a habitation module on the surface of the moon where you could stay indoors. Because if you look at it this way, a day on the surface of the moon is 29.5 Earth days. So it takes that much time for the sun to cross the lunar sky, a very good point. And technology has to be developed where you can obviously have these habitation modules, like housing on the moon, or places where you can shield yourself from the intensity of the sun. At local solar noon on the sun, you're looking at temperatures that are above or around 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's an amazing question. And I hope that at least puts that one uh, to rest for the moment. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. Dr. Sky is my guest. We're talking space. We're talking satellites. We're talking aviation. We're talking astronomy. We're talking anything that involves looking up. If you have questions, feel free to jump on board. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Talking with our resident spaceman, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can, if you're interested in the subjects we're covering, you can uh, absolutely learn more about them by checking out the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. Just search the Dr. Sky Experience on uh, iTunes or any podcast app, and it'll come right up. Or you can just go right to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. It's there as well. Steve, what are we, you mentioned comets as it relates to uh, biological matter and uh, mm-hmm. several other things a little earlier. What are we in store for in terms of comet discovery in the near future? Well, Frank, there's something interesting. But before that, I just wanted to mention about the Dr. Sky experience. People Please. can listen to interviews. I was honored to have an interview with Fred Hayes on Apollo 13. That should be up there now. And one coming very shortly that I did a long time ago and very proud of with the first American to orbit the Earth, John Glenn. What an amazing time to spend with him, at least on the telephone, but not in person. And so many other interviews. And also, we have our regular blog there, which will be com- you know, updating people on news stories and such. But there's also interjected into the Dr. Sky experience a weekly Dr. Sky update on what you can see in the sky. So if you don't catch it all in the broadcast, you certainly can go there. But Frank... Another comet's been discovered, and, you know, again, we have to be careful when we talk about comets because the news media, at least out here in Arizona, I don't blame them, but it's like, do your homework, guys. I mean, here's what they were saying, what they talk about comet ZTF. Oh, go out tonight, meaning a few nights ago or last month, and look up at 10 o'clock and you'll see the green comet. Well, no, this comet was actually faint, and trying to get it right, that's what we're talking about. A new comet discovered just recently called C2023A3 will hopefully get closest to us, not in a danger area, in October of 2024. It hasn't been around the sun since 80,000 years ago. But comets are very funny things. They're like cats. You know, they both have tails, and they do exactly <laughs> what they want. And I didn't create that little line. It was actually David Levy, who's a great comet discoverer, who lives here in Arizona. But I thought that was cute because cats do exactly what they want, and, well, most of them have tails. So comets are fascinating. The whole story of comets. I don't know. Have have you observed one yourself, uh, Frank? I'm just curious. Uh, no, I, I've looked in uh, the direction at the times that I thought that it would uh, that it would be, yeah. even with binoculars. But I've never, uh, except on uh, on websites that monitor this sort of thing, I've never had the pleasure of uh, of seeing one in person. 
Well, going back in the Dr. Sky time machine, not to bore the audience, the best thing I ever saw in my life was a bunch of our friends went out to the Arizona desert in 1996, and we saw a comet called Comet Yagataki. Now, maybe some of the listeners saw it, too. What's so important about this? We're out in the desert of Arizona with the scorpions and the rattlesnakes, literally. And I had a lounge chair, and the comet was 9 million miles from the Earth. But you've seen contrails in the sky, that you know, jet contrails right. that go all across the sky. Frank, the comet's contrail was the tail stretched 180 degrees across the sky as I was watching the nucleus. And I said to myself, please, never let this end. And unfortunately, the next days were cloudy. But that's something hopefully people will get to see someday. But keep the comet at least a little bit farther out so it doesn't come close to uh, here. Absolutely. Is there a good uh, online comet resource that you could recommend to see? What, oh, absolutely. What you tell me. Yeah, absolutely. I recommend this. And in, in everything that we talk about here, we always want to send people to theskylive.com. And this is a gentleman in Italy that I think has done an amazing job. It's not my website, certainly, and I want to take credit for this. But if you go to the Sky Live, just theskylive.com, it is going to give you so much information on every single comet that's at least visible, small telescope, large telescope. It gives you all the orbital information. It gives you a star view, a sky view. And if you keep zooming into the different ones, it actually has something so amazing. It'll show you the comet's position in real time in a most magnified view of the sky. And that might be for some really serious observers out there. And you know who you are out there with the telescopes that use the right ascension and declination coordinates to find something. Check it out because it's really an amazing site. And I use it all the time for what we do even to prepare for the program here. Uh, it's just uh, literally out of this world. In terms of uh, other things that we're seeing from uh, images that are being back to, uh, beamed back to Earth, I'll tell you this, James Webb Space Telescope, with every image, it becomes more impressive. And I'm hoping you can uh, kind of help us read through the tea leaves on something that made headlines this week, which is re-examining the first recorded supernova. Now, I think most people, even who have only a passing interest in this stuff, understand that when sure. a star goes nova, that uh, that's sort of the end of the line for that particular star. What was the first recorded supernova, and how is the James Webb Telescope giving us the opportunity to re-examine it? Well, let's first talk about supernova. Depending on the type, the classification that usually is most powerful, they're called type 1A, and there's other types. So according to these news articles, and this is accurate, but eh, a little bit of information needs to be put out here to make it more accurate. They're claiming that in the year 185 AD, one of the most brilliant supernova was actually observed by Chinese astronomers slash astrologers. And now we see the remnant of this particular object with images like from James Webb. This big, looks like a giant expanding donut, you know, area in the sky. But what's fascinating about supernova is we're long overdue, Frank, for one, in our own environment. The closer the object, the brighter the object would more likely be. But if you go back to a November 11th of 1572, this is a long time ago, there was an astronomer named Tycho Brahe who lived in the, in the area of Denmark. And this is way before telescopes were invented. He observed an object that blew, you know, blew up in the sky, was as bright as Venus, visible in the daytime, and lasted for over a year. And it was the first time that astronomers or astrologers actually said, you know, the heavens do change. Because if you look at the old ways in the church in the early times, in the dark ages, 
we were supposed to believe that the Earth was the center of everything, and how dare you say that the Earth goes around the sun? This is one of the times in which changes occurred. They noticed the supernova in the sky. The Chinese in 1054 A.D. observed something called a, a super supernova. We now know it's called the Crab Nebula. For astronomy, you know, if you look into the sky and look up the Crab Nebula, it's a remnant. But what's really interesting about this whole thing is James Webb is actually peering so far deep back into the early days of creation. This is a little different subject now. It would be observing so much with these objects, and, and I'd love to see a supernova. So the biggest likely candidate, at least on the books right now, is the star Betelgeuse, the funny named star. You look up in the sky right now in March into the southwest, high at sunset, is Orion's arm. The armpit is Betelgeuse, 500 light years away. We've covered this when we used to fly on NASA's 747 Sophia with the 100-inch telescope. They would open up the door, and we didn't get sucked out, but in, we were on the other side of the uh, firewall. But we observed that star, Frank, for like 13 hours or so in the air, and that's a star that we're saying is kind of overdue to become a supernova. And if it does, it could be in our lifetime, it could be next hmm. week, it could be thousands of years from now. It will literally glow in the sky as about the brilliance of a half moon. And it will be in our sky. It's a really big symbolic thing because that star is burning out of energy and something's going to happen where it's going to collapse. Synonymous as if somebody had a major heart attack, the star will lose its rhythm and it will go offline and literally collapse. So Betelgeuse well, is probably the next candidate. What do we think the timetable is for that Betelgeuse? Good question. I interviewed a guy from the University of Pennsylvania about two years ago when the star slowly started dimming in the sky. And people were saying, oh, that's definitely the, the precursor to Betelgeuse going. It's going to collapse. Well, what he was telling us, and from observations, is the star was giving off this large material, this large cloud of material, obscuring the star, thus dimming it to our eyes. And remember, this is 500 light years away. So it happened 500 years ago. But their latest guesstimates on this, and again, it's so, it's so nebulous, it could be two weeks from now, or it could be 500 years or 1,000 years but one day it will go supernova. But let's pray, of course, and we do that, that none of those stars within any close proximity to the Earth would do that. Because if and when that would happen, let's say Sirius, the brightest star in the heavens, is 8.6 light years away. If Betelgeuse was the distance of Sirius at 8.6 light years away and it blew, the gamma ray radiation from that would make what we were talking about with, with previous callers about a repeat of the Carrington event it would be game over for the Earth if a star that close, that big, actually did its, uh, you know, final swan swan dive. Let's um, <laughs> hope that doesn't happen for a uh, while. Yeah. Aren't uh, we lucky, though? Aren't we lucky that we kind of live? It's so strange. People say to me, well, wait a minute, Steve, Dr. Sky, you know, you're talking about this stuff, and you look at the night sky, nothing really changes to the point where we're, you know, tomorrow an asteroid's going to slam into us. Kind of lucky. We don't see a supernova that close because no star that we know of, anything that close, like the blue star Sirius, is a much younger star. So it has a lot longer to go. Let's say its batteries can go a lot longer if there were batteries. It's not going to run out of juice and just die out. But if you had a massive star close to the sun, that would be something problematic. Take the worst case. There's a star called Deneb in the constellation Cygnus. That star's about, what, almost 2,000 light years away. But if that particular blue supergiant blew and it was as close as, say, Sirius, 
I don't think we'd be having this radio conversation right now. That would be uh, the end of all what we call our world. Very quickly, on Sunday, this is one of my least favorite periods of the year, uh, daylight saving time, in that I hate losing the hour of sleep and or productivity, which I really value. But Mm -hmm. um, there's now a big movement to give the moon a time zone. Why? Why? Why do we care what time it is on the moon? Well, let's start off with Antarctica. If you really look at it, there's no real official time zones there. I mean, they haven't because nobody can own Antarctica. So the, so the comment is, since Antarctica is largely uninhabited, the continent is not officially divided up into time zones. But the same thing with the moon. Nobody's going to be able to own the moon. And what real significance would there be to actually set up time zones? It's not like we're building subways and bridges and tunnels and highways. So the obvious thing is that that's something I think is, is kind of like almost in a joking way. Why would we want that? Because if you're looking at astronauts at, say, the Aiken Basin, where they're going to go with the South Pole of the Moon, why don't they just use local time? In other words, the sun takes 29 and a half days to cross the, the lunar sky. So maybe we could come up with some kind of a thing for them. But I don't think we really need to divide the whole moon up into time zones for exactly what purpose. There's no habitation at this point that justifies that. Mm. Uh, Very interesting. Let me try and squeeze in at least one more call here. David is in New Jersey. Hello, David. Hey. Good morning. You got me? We got you, David. What's on your mind? Mm -hmm. Why do the seasons not occur on the 21st? It's listed as the 20th this year and sometimes as late as the 23rd. Why Absolutely. Great question. And here's the answer. The Earth's orbit is not a perfect circle. So what happens is they call it, and it's a fancy term called obliquity. But the, but the simple way to say it is the Earth's orbit is not a perfect circle. It's got an elliptical shape to it. So what would happen is the sun, as we look at it, when it crosses the equator, let's take the time of the equinoxes. When the sun is crossing the equator from south to north, the orbit of the Earth is different. So it's not a perfect circle. So it varies by, say, a day or two. And the same thing happens if you look at the other side, David, when you get the solstices, the winter solstice, the low ebb, the short days. And then when you get the high ebb in the summer solstice, again, it's because of the Earth's orbital. You know, it's not a perfect circle. Venus has one of the most perfect circular orbits. But the temperatures there, I don't think anybody would want to go in this listening audience the average, if we did the weather forecast, David, for Venus every day, it would be a balmy 915 degrees Fahrenheit, and I'd rather be here. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I should say so. Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. Uh, you enlighten our audience, and you do it with so much gusto and energy. I'll look forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Well, thank you, Frank, and good morning to all the listeners out there. Thank you. Be sure to check out the Dr. Sky blog and the Dr. Sky experience. Just Google the Dr. Sky experience, or you can just go to any podcast app and type the Dr. Sky experience. It comes right up. You should subscribe. You'll hear uh, great interviews, including interviews from yesteryear with people like John Glenn, Fred Hayes from Apollo 13, and a lot of other insight uh, as only as only steve cates can bring it we're just getting started here hey speaking of time this weekend starts daylight saving time you know how i feel about this i'm going to endeavor to give you my two cents on this without repeating the same things that i say every single year if you have thoughts on daylight saving time and setting the clocks ahead this weekend give me a call 800-848-9222 your influence counts so use it